This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone who tunes in and shares our little community here. And please keep your emails coming. If you sent me an email, you know you got a response. I love communicating with my audience. I'm inspired today because I have a wonderful writer on the show whose work I've been aware of for a while. And then her latest book is just a deeply personal account. Poetry and prose of the writing is very strong, and I could relate too, and I'll get to that later. The book is As Long As I Know You, the mom book which won the Sue William Silverman Prize for Creative Nonfiction. Among many prizes this writer has accumulated in her wonderful career, it's such an honor to finally welcome to the family, Miss Anne-Marie Orman. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. It's really an honor. Thank you. The question just spontaneously, how have you done with COVID over the last three years? Oh, <laughs> well... Uh, COVID was a reset button on in lots of ways, uh, for as it was for many people. I actually, though, this is a two-pronged answer. During that time, of course, I lost my mother, possibly to COVID. And that was part of the reason that I could finish the book. I was driven by grief. But the other thing about COVID is because it forced me to say, a no to so many things because we were trying to stay safe. We were trying to keep other people safe. I probably wrote more and actually got more done during the intense periods of lockdown than at any other period in my life, which is so ironic and in some ways sad because it had to be that way in order to, to really push me into high gear. I think some of it too was the anxiety of the time and not that that's all gone away, but we're managing it now and we've got some skills and we've got vaccines. And so now it's less fearsome. And, but at that time, I think the anxiety was also part of the drive was here's, here's a way to manage uh, your worry and, and the, and also the burden of not being able to see my mother and see the family. So all of that was tied together. But that's uh, how I think COVID worked for and against me. And I didn't know if your mother did die of COVID or not. Would do you just not know? We don't know. We, you know, we were in lockdown. Uh, it was in November of uh, 21. Is that right? No, it's 22 now. So it was November of 20. And excuse me. And it was the numbers in our particular county were just skyrocketing. And they had called from the facility where she was living to say that she was not doing well. And could they test her? And we said, yes, of course, please, please do go ahead. But for some reason, the test was scheduled for Tuesday and she died on a, on the Monday just before that. So we'll never know for sure. I suspect it might've been the case, 
but I, you know, she was also very, very elder. She was 99. So age was also playing in there. And uh, the saddest part about that, of course, Paul, is like so many families, we couldn't be with her. We don't, um, I've asked and asked, but I, it sounds like no one was with her right at that moment. And so that is a, a haunting that stays with me and carries on. You guys were so connected after she passed. Has she ever shown up in a dream or do you feel her presence anytime around you? You know, what is so strange is through after she died, I had been struggling. You know, I started this book in 2014 and I had been struggling and struggling to finish it. And I had really defied the idea of ending with her death, that I was waiting for her death. And then when COVID hit, you know, I was really able to rework the manuscript during that time and thought, okay, I think, I think I've got a good place to end. She's still alive. And, and then she died and the grief just tore through me. And that forced me to rewrite the end of the book and to rewrite, to add the epilogue, um, which is about her passing. And that, through that whole writing, that whole final write, I felt her with me. It was like she was, she was, and, and you know, all the doubts and the sense of unworthiness that one has when, especially with memoir, like who wants to read my story? <laughs> who wants all the I stories again? And uh, it just felt like she was with me, like little little voices coaching and and saying, come on, get it done, do it, it's your work. And that forced me to, to go through again, rewriting. And then, you know, she died in November and the following February was the deadline for the AWP contest. And I thought, okay, I don't have any hope in the world for this contest, but I'm gonna send the manuscript in because it marks time and it marks a, a, a sort of finishing of this stage of grief. Grief is always gonna be with us, but I think one of the challenges is to make it more companionable. That the grief drove me to finish and then to send to this contest so that there would be an actual day marked that said, I am done with this stage and now I'm going to enter this new stage where grief will be different in some way. And I'm still exploring that. But in answer to your question, that period of time, that's when I felt her with me. And since then, not so much. She's more based in memory. It's almost as though her spirit was hanging out, going, doing the little coach to this project and then when it was done it was she moved on and I sort of not that I move on but it as I said it transforms into something else does that make sense it does and what's interesting is grief here she lived 99 years my mom lived to 90 dad lived in 94 but I miss them every day the heartaches the memories the smiles the tears the appreciation grows with time 
and the understanding. It's like, oh, I wish I had all this perspective when I was a little guy. <laughs> Isn't it the truth? Holy shit, was I, oh, God. I know, because I'm uh, older, and as you know from having read As Long As I Know You, if you met my, Paul, if you met my mother, you would find her gracious, lovely, warm-hearted, generous, and she was that. But as sometimes happens in families, I was not the daughter for her. I, I, I was strangely independent, dreamy, uh, unfocused. I, I was not a responsible little girl or a big girl. And we just were at loggerheads. We were on a collision course almost all of our lives. And it's only when, as you know, when, when one partner passes, my father died in uh, 2010. And then the veil was kind of full, pulled off and we realized how uh, frail she was. The beginnings of dementia were probably in place and we, that was revealed to us. And so we had uh, that time period of, I had that time period then of reassessing everything and stepping up to the plate, figuring out how to finally, as I am losing her to dementia, to make friends with her and really become more uh, kindred in spirit. And that was the journey of, of her last decade with, or my journey of her last decade was finding that moment of those moments of connection that we had not had. Did she ever acknowledge your work and all that you had accomplished? She liked my first book and was able to read my first book quite easily, which is Pulling Down the Barn, which was all the childhood stories. And she he knew those stories and some of those stories were deeply influenced by her. And, uh, and, but of course in, in pulling down the barn, that first book and in all the three memoirs that are kind of united, pulling down the barn house of fields. And then the third one, love, sex and 4-H. I, I, you can tell she's a tough mom and her expectations are really high, but I think I handle her more with kid gloves and, um, Gosh, and I never said this before, but I think I kind of take off the gloves in this, in this book. Yeah. And so we are on that journey together. And she is, she is who she is. Yeah. What was her mom like? Why was she the way she was? Oh, my gosh. What a good question. She um, was raised in a really rural uh, farm also farm is tradition in in our in our um, gene pool I guess farming and connection to the land and her mother Julia was uh, I think a, a simple woman as I remember her a kind of uninspired cook and here's the thing when my grandfather died my mother took her mother into our home at first only through the winters, but then year round. And she had a little room in the back of the house um, with her own bathroom. And she was with us for all of our meals and every day. And, and my mom also took care of my father's um, father. 
and also an invalid aunt periodically. And she did that. And so when we were unable, this is the heartbreak, when we were unable to take care of her, it felt like a real betrayal. In her childhood, she lost a brother. And then the story is that uh, their barn burned and her father had no insurance on that barn. So he rebuilt the barn, put all the insurance on the barn and because barns were critical, of course, in that, in that time period in the 20s and 30s. And then of course, what happens, but the house burns and there's no insurance on that. And so the family spirals down into a kind of um, poverty that I think was really, really hard on her and on her mother. I think she ended up caring for her mother, not just in those older years, but in some ways as a, as a very young child, because losing the brother had sent her mother into a depression. And so I think at a very young age, she was doing some pretty serious caregiving herself. And for that reason, I think her expectations, uh, well, part of what happened, I think, is that she was very sensitive to shame, in part because my grandfather, her father, became a drinker. And that on top of the fires and losing a sibling and the poverty, I think put her on a really high alert for shame. And she would not tolerate anyone bringing shame on the family. And I think because I was adventurous and I made mistakes, I was on, that's one of the reasons I was on the collision course with her. But having my grandmother, in our household taught me a lot about elder care and about the need to be with family. And yet I did not really apply those lessons from my grandmother very easily, nor from my mother. So I, and, oh, one last thing. My grandmother for all of her simplicity was a, uh, an embroiderer and a tatter, T-A-T-T-E-R, which is this beautiful uh, kind of crochet work that you, it's very complex. You buy patterns for it, it's very difficult. And she could do this, which just amazes me for hours and produce these beautiful, which were very popular in the forties, these beautiful doilies and I have, a, I have a few of those. And sometimes I look at those and they're just this metaphor now for the spiraling relationships among the women of my family. I feel like your mom had a lot of unhealed trauma and might have resented how a lot of her life was then dictated to her and that she ended up having to take care of everyone else. And maybe she had a lot of unrealized dreams she might have resented your freedom and what she would perceive as a carefree existence. And then you go on to be a writer. What an insightful comment. Yes, I think I think that's it precisely. I think my sense, especially growing up through the 60s and 70s, my sense of willfulness, um, the, the power in my own 
um, sense of being out there, full force ahead, all of that irritated her. And I do think you're right. I think, and I do say that at some point in the book that I think there might've been some undiagnosed trauma or an anxiety disorder that hadn't been fully ever uh, addressed. And that would be another thing, Paul, that she would be upset by. She would be embarrassed to have to say that, you know, that it was part of her persona to appear to have a public presentation of grace and strength and, and, uh, and certain uh, dignity, which she did carry off beautifully. And I think that because I was an elder and she had such fears that I wouldn't turn out okay. <laughs> and of course I, I confirmed those fears in so many ways <laughs> with my independence and, and uh, yeah, all of that, so. But what an insight. Yes, I think you're right. And I think for that generation, oh my gosh, to admit that you might need help, that you might need therapy, that was really hard for her to, to say. I mean, I suggested it once and it was not, did not go well. And she, she just could not acknowledge that she was that vulnerable. It was at least not publicly. Yeah. And that's the generation and the ones before that you never talk about your problems or you never show weakness. And that's right. That's right. That's the, and now we're, you know, we're so open about it and thank goodness we are that, you know, we can say, okay, I'm in a little trouble here. I need, I need some help that is outside of myself. And, um, and, our, and our journeys to spirituality are very different now. Hers was a very traditional she and my father were devout Roman Catholics and that uh, sense of our spirituality being more free form. Now it was not in their picture at all. Did you ever buy into the Catholic uh, multi-level con? Oh yeah. As a, as a young person, I, well, long story short, we went to parochial school for a while. Once the farm became our farm, became a little more successful. My parents really wanted us in Catholic schools. And we, so we had a, um, an education for a while in, um, the Catholic schools. And at, in my eighth grade year, I recognized that I did not easily fit into this farm culture. And I was acutely aware that I, I, I was not probably going to follow that path of becoming the farm wife or the farm, you know, some having something to do with farming. And I thought I would be a nun. And so in Michigan, there was a Dominican convent and the teachers we had were Dominican sisters from that order. And I thought, oh yeah, this is probably it. I'm probably meant to be a nun. And so as a freshman in high school, I went to the convent in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, it was called Marywood Academy. And I thought, maybe this is it. You know, maybe, maybe this would work. And the story there is that I, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but the anecdote is, is I think funny. On Friday nights, we had a very strict existence. We lived in dorms, but 
But on Friday nights, we were allowed to go to what was called the Madonna Lounge. Now, does that not have, yeah, it was called the Madonna Lounge and it was a, a big, lovely living room on the main floor where the sisters could greet their families. And on Friday nights, there was, it was the only TV in the place and it was a color TV back in that era when it was just starting to be popular to have a color TV. And we were allowed to watch for a couple of hours on Friday nights. And we were given permission to watch this old spy show. You remember that was the era of the spy shows. And we watched The Man from Uncle. And so I'm in this big living room filled with statues of Madonnas that are brought back by the mission sisters from all over the world. These beautiful Madonnas, some of them are marble, some of them are hand carved, some of them are, they're black Madonnas, they're, you know, every kind of Madonna looking on, dozens and dozens of them. And I'm watching The Man from Uncle and I realize that I'm starting to have a crush on the spies. And so it was my first realization. I was, you know, I was naive and I it was like, oh, oh my goodness, I really like this. I like these heroes. And it was my also my lead in because I started writing stories with those characters in them. So it was my first attempt, it would be called fan fiction now, but it was my first real attempt at creating an arc, creating a story. And I have to tell you, it was remarkable that not only did it let me know I wasn't meant to be a nun, but it was my very first foray into playing with language and telling a story. So that's a long anecdote, but, and I, it's retold with more detail in um, the last chapters of Pulling Down the Barn, because it led me back to the farm and I had to figure out a way to be both of it and different from it. When did you first fall in love with writing so deeply? Well, part of it was, I've always been a little bit of a scribbler. I, I was always kind of interested in language. And on some level, my mother must have sensed that because I think I must have been 11 or somewhere around there. She bought me a subscription to this magazine called American Girl. And it was full of all these things I call blonde things, you know, pretty girls doing girly girl things. And I was like, oh, please. But there was a column where other girls were writing in and they were being published, these letters and little, little stories, sometimes poems. And I was intrigued with that idea right off, right off the bat. I thought, oh my goodness, these are, there's other girls writing these stories and these poems. So I wrote a description of a, of a sunrise or a sunset. I don't remember. I know it was the transition times of day, which on a farm are so critical. You know, it's either the rising to the work or the, the bedding of the animals. It's always, you know, those two things at the, in those transitions. And I uh, wrote that and I remember taking this notebook sheet out to my mother and she's at our well pit filling jugs for workers to take water to the fields, which I would be given. And I said, can I, can I read this to you? And I did. 
And she's going, you like to do this? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's one of those moments of disbelief. You, you like this? And I said, yeah. And, and I said, can I send it in? And she said, oh, sure. And I think it probably ended up in the trash somewhere. because I don't remember anything more after that. But that was the very first conscious attempt to connect what I was hearing as my creativity to an audience, which is part of what artists, literary artists, visual artists, dancers, that's what has to happen. Uh, you can build art for art's sake, and that there is a place for that. But ultimately, if you're making, if you're a maker, I think part of the making is the connection. And that was my very first earliest consciousness of that, that like, oh, somebody could read this and they, we'd be connected in some way. I would have done something that they would have read and that means we would be together in, even if we didn't fully know that. Do you find that writing too as a process brings clarity and healing? Oh, yes, Paul. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think when we have memories, and this is why I think I'm more memoirs than essayists, but I do both. When we have memories and they stay with us, especially if they're troublesome and they worry us, uh, Tara Bray Smith says in her um, intro to West of Then, her memoir, that memory is like a tooth that, you know, it, it, it's chipped and you, your tongue keeps going to it and it worries it. And that's, I love that idea that the tongue worries this little chip, this little gap. And I feel that our memories are like that and especially the troublesome ones. And that those are the memories when we start to write them, we're going to apply to them to some degree, the narrative that we perceive of our lives. But what happens so often is in that trying to sort it out, to say what happened, to say what things were like before and after these, these moments, we often, I often discover they didn't mean what I thought they meant, that there is another layer. And then I actually can make, I can create a related but alternative meaning that offers greater insight both to me and to the reader by the act of writing and revision. So it grows, it, you know, it's like we begin to not just have the memory of what was and the narrative we apply to the memory, but these additional layers start to occur. Particularly, I think we start out with what we understand and it's when we ask ourselves the question, what we don't really understand about that memory, that's where it gets interesting. How do you feel about your mother today? Looking back with the perspective and all you went through, what are your feelings towards her in this moment? Well, my love for her now is clear. I mean, that's, that's the thing. That's the evolution of losing her both to dementia, losing her to COVID possibly, losing her to uncertainty, uh, what I can feel rising now or ha has risen to the surface is an intense love and a complicated friendship. 
what I recognize is even as the, even in those final years, when, when we are able, when I'm actually able to willingly care for her and without resentment and without the old world pressing on me, um, that we are, it's a complicated friendship. That it, it will always be laced with uh, some anxiety and some guilt and some uh, wonder. Uh, but now I've, I am able to see how generous she was, even through her own anxieties, which I didn't always see. And I am able to uh, honor the talent, the teaching that she did, which I, I at the time I resented her authority, you know, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> I, I think that yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little in love with her now. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a sad and yet very rich thing now. And you can see that she loved you so deeply. I think she did. I, I really do. I think she did. And it, it was hard for her to express because it was so fraught with those fears and the shame and, and, you know, all of that, the conflict of her authority and her against her just, yeah, her, her love was, I think, always there. And there was some trauma related to it. And so it was difficult for her to express it forthrightly. But now I see it every time I turn around in memory. Talk about your dad. Where does he fit in all this? Oh, my goodness. He was um, uh, a World War II vet and two tours in Africa um, under Africa and Sicily and Italy. Under, I think now some of what I recognize now from the names that are passed down, probably some pretty tough fighting. He was um, a very quiet man, very determined, very devout and strict. He and I were close. He liked the fact that I liked um, thinking and uh, we were together in so many ways that because, because he was uh, quiet and also somewhat independent loner. And that was probably another reason that my mother was somewhat threatened is because he and I could sit with each other or we could argue with each other without um, shouts. We could, you know, uh, he was deeply conservative. My leanings ended up being a little, you know, left of center, just the way we operated. And yet we could talk for hours. We had a really warm camaraderie. And I think that might've been um, part of the problem. I bet you miss him a lot, don't you? Oh, his death just, um, yeah, it sent me into a real tizzy of grief, too. And it took a long time to get past that. I, I had to go to therapy. I had to go to a grief therapist for a while to get a handle on that because it was it was such a loss to me. And then that complicated with what it revealed about my mother's circumstance also was complicated. You were there too for his final breaths, right? Yes. 
yes, that is the first chapter of the book. And um, realizing in, in the midst of all of this chaos that, oh my gosh, we're gonna, we're, mom's in a different place now. I think we just thought, Paul, that they were gonna live forever. Well, he was, he was 91, healthy. You know, he was only sick for the last six days of his life. And uh, we just, I think we just thought they were those, the kind of, uh, what do you call it? Hardy, really hardy, healthy people who were going on and we just carry on forever. You know? It was denial. You know? Truly, my dad decided he was done. He left on his own terms, stopped eating and drinking. And I had that last 10 days with him. But I honestly thought like he'd have six more months without eating and drinking. And he, and he was fine, and then he just got more tired, and he got extremely spiritual, not in like scared to die. The opposite, he expanded into ultimate knowing, became like an avatar at the end. Took, it was like the after show where the actors take off their masks, and he could be the soul for a little while. And he was more of a humanist. He, he hated religion because his IQ was well over 100, and he was just this beautiful man, a great ethics, and... But then he, when he was winding it down, he sounded like the Buddha, Jesus, Krishna, Yogananda. I mean, it was amazing and not delirious, like as clear eyed as you could ever be. Yeah, his soul really shined through. It was the ultimate gift. And it was so hard to say goodbye. It was like, and even sometimes now, I'll feel him or mom and I'm just like, I can't believe they're gone. I really did think. They were gods deep down and that they would live on. And they are still around. They just shed that particular collection of carbon stars. And now they're in a much lighter way. But uh, I do miss in this dimension, talking to him, hugging him, and just being with him. You know, that's so interesting when that you say that, because when my father passed, I and I said I went into this spiral of grief. And again, I like with mom, I had to find a way to um, to understand that. And with him, it was sharp. You know, it was it was thunder with her. It was like wind chimes. Um, but with him, I remember, you know, he died in June. And I remember going to the beach thinking, we, we live near Lake Michigan and thinking, I just, I just need an afternoon to, to cry. And looking out at the water and I saw a woman struggling with a paddleboard and that paddleboards were just hitting Lake Michigan. And I watched her and I went, oh, that's, that's what I need to do. That's, that's, I need to, I need to go be on a paddleboard. I've never been on a paddleboard in my life. I did, I'd never even seen one before. So I went and I rented one and I got out on the water. It took me a little while to learn the balance, but I, I found I was pretty good at it. And I was able through that both exercise and the meditative quality of that particular sport to really grapple with my father grief and get out on the, getting out on the water and that in, in addition to the therapy. But I remember one particular time late in the fall, really flat water, but a good wind. And I got way out on Lake Michigan. And I'm saying to myself, you know, where are you? What, what's happened? You know, that kind of longing for 
some kind of certainty, you know, in a, in a place that is often fraught with uncertainty. And I had just for a few minutes, this flash that there was this pervasiveness of existence just skimming over that dark water, just huge and, and immense. And I, and I just had that really brief moment of feeling like, oh, there's his soul just out there in the universe. It's skimming through the sky and over the waters and over the waves. And he's, you know, this immense thinking going on. And I, you know, who knows, but that was certainly the instinct that came to me in that moment. I had a very similar experience. I was, after he passed, I went down to the beach and I got in the ocean and just floated like he used to like to float and like he took me in as a baby. And I looked out and the sun was behind this cloud. And I swear I felt the voice just say, now I'm everything. This is me. This is, and look how magnificent I am now. And I was like, oh my God. And I just felt him everywhere and he was everything. But he, and he said, I will come to you in infinite forms. So I was like, wow, it did help. I still missed him, but wow. Wow. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. See, isn't that interesting? <laughs> hold that. We hold that. I hold that close. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful. Yeah. And it, you know, it's the water and air and the, you know, the being connected, I think, to the elements of fluidity in, in earth. I mean, I think probably people feel it in trees and forests too, but the water is really important to us here. How do you feel about your own mortality and, and inevitable demise? That was an unexpected question, Paul. <laughs> None of them are planned, as you know. <laughs> I, uh, I want to live fully for as long as I can. I, I, I want to write. I want to create. I want to live fully for as long as I can. We have a very rustic one room cabin up in Canada on a lake. I want to jump off that dock when I'm 85. And, and so the fullness of life is really something that I truly embrace and, and want fully. But I have this feeling that when, and I'm not sure I've ever said this before, I'm, I'm, that I'll know when it's done. And that then my attitude, I hope it will not be fearful. I hope my attitude will be, and this is something I really want to be that, okay, here's the final transformative moment that, or not maybe the final, but the one that I can um, understand, uh, that I can grapple with, that I'll experience it as a transformative moment as a, a, you know, a transition. I've been working with these transformative moments in my writing for my whole life. And that will be, I hope the last one, the one that I can manage in a, in a place that has some kind of um, a sense of adventure. <laughs> is that naive on my part? Because I think death is also hard work from what I have seen. Maybe a gentle surrender into the new doorway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think for some people the door sticks a little. But I think there's a different 
maybe there's a different journey for each one of us, but it just seems to me living this life fully and then, and then being able to say, okay, I, this is the last great adventure. I'd like it to be like that. And I, and I think we often um, control our own narratives if we, if we um, work hard at it. Wow, this has just been beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for that question. You know, I'm going to think about that question more. There may be more nuances to it, but that's, that's uh, where I, I land right now. Well, how about a final question? I'm going to put you in a time machine. You're going to go back to the farm you grew up with. There you are, all of 12 or 13, and now you know so much. What would you say to that sweet young girl? I think I'd say, I think I'd assure her that she can do it. That, and I, I think I'd assure her that she could, you know, it took me so long even though I was a scribbler early on and I had those early experiences writing, I did not actually become a committed writer until my first marriage failed. And that's when I finally got into the, you know, I, I, that's a reassessment time. You know, your practice marriage goes down and you kind of go, Oh, I have to, I have to rethink this life. And I was in my um, early thirties and I said, okay, what is it that I really, really love? And it came right quickly that, oh, you love to write. But I hadn't, I'd been a teacher and I hadn't really been practicing the actual creation of writing deeply. And so that's when I started much, a much late bloomer. And at that 12 year old girl, if I could have said to her then, yes, you can do it. You do not have to second guess this. You do not have to have the anxiety about whether or not you're an artist or a maker um, of any sort, you can build that into your life sooner. I would say that, that she should be reassured that yes, those impulses were hers and hers um, to follow. It just took me too long, you know? <laughs> not too long, but it just took me a long time. I don't know if you can hear this call right now, suddenly there's this beautiful downpour happening right outside my window. So if you've got a little static coming in, it's it's the rain against the window. It seems so fortuitous. I would call that tears from heaven. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Indeed. So I don't know if that answered your question about the 12-year-old girl, but that's that's kind of where I land. Yeah. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. <laughs>